0: from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: I sat down recently with Rick Stengel, who is not only one of the most distinguished journalists of our time, but also one of the most outspoken voices about the menace of disinformation in the modern media age. He's the former managing editor of Time Magazine, He was a chief executive of the National Constitution Center and he served as Undersecretary of State for Public Diplomacy and Public Affairs under President Obama. In that role, uh, he spent a great deal of time trying to counter Russian disinformation and ISIS propaganda and that gave rise to his latest book, Information Wars, how we lost the global battle against disinformation and what we can do about it. Here's our conversation. Rick Stengel, it's, it's good to see you again. Great to see you. Um, in these uh, very interesting, tumultuous times. Um, before we get to all of that, because you're right in the middle of a discussion that's so important about how we communicate with each other and how information is disseminated and misinformation is uh, disseminated, I want to have a factual discussion about rick stengel and (laughs) uh, not the myth and your life Uh, we're here in new york city having this conversation you were born and and raised here and in the suburbs yes
2: yes i was born uh on the upper east side my family actually my mother and father were the first in their respective families to make the move from brooklyn into manhattan
1: your grandparents were Immigrants? Yeah,
2: so I had uh, uh, none of my—neither of my grandparents graduated from high school. They both were—came uh, here as small boys, one from uh, Hungary, one from Russia, uh, other parts of my family from Germany and, and Austria. So it was—yeah, I'm really, I guess, would be second generation, I guess. Mm-hmm.
1: And um, your dad was in the— Furniture manufacturing business.
2: Yeah, so my my father's family emigrated to Pittsburgh and started a a furniture, a little furniture company, and um, my father's father then moved to Brooklyn and brought it here, and it was a sort of a family business, and um, I my father wanted me to go into it, but. uh, I wasn't that interested, in plus it kind of went out of business when I was in grad school, so I, I missed that. Bullet. You don't
1: want the culpability for that. I don't
2: have the culpability. So for you
1: you, uh, he, you also have said that he uh, he served in the military and that he was very much someone who believed in public service.
2: Yes. I mean, I, I, he was a kid from Brooklyn, an immigrant son, and he went into the Army Air Force where he met kids from all across the country. I mean, it's a Great, great bonding experience. One of the reasons I got interested when I was at time in national and made service, the case for yeah. national service is just I saw what a what an enormous difference that made not only to him but to the country as a whole. And granted, you don't want to have to do have a world war in order to to kind of get you know e pluribus unum out of many one. But it did have that effect having you know s- serving like that. And he was a kid from Brooklyn who. you know, was stationed in South Carolina and Hawaii and, you know, made friends from all across that you never would have met otherwise. and, And that was a bonding experience. Yeah,
1: I think that the impact of that on the country, you know, the whole greatest generation experience wasn't just the triumph over fascism, but the fact that the country did it together and these barriers were broken down and you met people from all over. And I think when these people went into public service, uh, they had this common experience as well. I'm kind of interested to see if the uh, we're now seeing this new generation of military people and 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 you know intelligence officers and others going into public service whether that will recoup some of that uh, spirit of country over party understanding of each other. But uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that. And that, nat- by the way,
2: that is a good thing, in part because one of the things I learned in government, which you surely knew, is the military does a very good job of teaching leadership. So these yes. young women and men who are leading platoons or bigger groups, I mean, they know how to lead. And, and, and that's something well, think i
1: about Well, think about serving in war, many of them at an early age. And the, the kind of mortal responsibilities that you have, um, that— that that is a pretty significant training, Absolutely. and you, you know you don't know, obviously don't get that uh, you don't get that anywhere else. Uh, you didn't you didn't go into the service, however, you went to Princeton. Yes, uh, and I I I learned, and I was sort of surprised to learn you, you you play basketball at Princeton. Yes, not very well, but I was I was on the team. I was on this
2: uh, great team that won. Uh the NIT, yeah. and I played for Pete Carell. And Who is
1: a legend. He's uh, a legend. A <laughs> uh, basketball legend. He was there for 35 years or something. Mm-hmm. His Princeton offense was this innovative offense that I guess uh, that was uh, particularly suited to you, Brainiacs at Princeton.
2: Although he – although when different NBA teams started playing in and I realized that, you know, doing a backdoor play with a guy who can dunk it from an alley-oop is a lot better than like a slow white guy yeah. doing, you know, doing a, a layup. But yeah, Pete was a kind of genius and um, the offense was kind of a beautiful thing. And and uh, It was really fun to watch. It was fun to watch and he was a great defensive coach and, I can't even tell you here on on podcast all the names he called me and all of us he was uh, <laughs> uh, he was he was rough and um, but I you know you could find the love underneath it um, I actually saw one of the my teammates the I've been on book tour and we went in uh, to Los Angeles Armand Hill was the star of the oh, yeah. team and he's a yeah. coach, coach on the Clippers so we went to a game with my sons uh, the other night and saw him so
1: yeah I think and he may have come there a few years uh, after you that John Rogers, uh, from Chicago, who's, you know, started Ariel, the capital there, the finance group. He was a friend of mine back in, in the day when I was a student at the university of Chicago. He was a high school basketball star, went to Princeton, became captain of the team. And it was like a life defining thing for him.
2: Well, it's funny to even talk about it. Yes. And he was a great player. Um, but it's coming out of our discussion of the military, in a way, this, this bond that happens yeah. in adversity among a group of small group of young men who are thrust together from all different places, not that dissimilar. I mean, it's it's very powerful, and uh, you know, I've kept those friendships, and it's and it's also an education in leadership, right, in, in in mutual sacrifice and one for all, all for one. Yes,
1: uh, and with with often vocal mentors. Uh, Kicking your ass and yes, telling yes. you. No,
2: I mean Pete. Pete used to uh, throw basketballs at us, chairs. I mean, <laughs> uh, he. <laughs> uh, but that was in our generation. I mean, now it wouldn't be acceptable. But it was just it was the matter of course, right? That's what coaches yeah. did, and it was really the uh, the exception rather than the rule. If somebody was a, was a more kind of humane.
1: Uh, I think Craig Robinson, uh, uh, Michelle's brother, was also He was probably a few years uh, uh, behind you as well.
2: Oh, yeah. Did he play for Pete as well?
1: I think he did. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, yeah. So I I think these great players like Craig and people who went on to have careers in basketball, I think they learned a tremendous amount from him. And Pete was also a a kind of—he loved being at Princeton. He loved talking about literature and poetry. I remember once after a big game— that we won against a much bigger and better opponent, he recited the poem uh, the, uh, to an athlete dying young. Instead yeah. of like congratulating us, I mean, I, I, we were all crying. You know, <laughs> that, that doesn't happen every day.
1: No. You know who wanted to play there and was turned away was Arnie Duncan, who became education secretary under President Obama, was deemed not worthy of Princeton basketball well, what, ended up being went, the went president the, of the. Uh, sorry, cha- uh, captain of the Harvard team. Yes.
2: So really, he was not accepted at Princeton. Yeah. Accepted at Harvard. Wow. That's. I'm sure somebody at Princeton regrets that now. <laughs> uh,
1: so you uh, you you went on. You were a Rhodes Scholar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you uh, you went into journalism. Uh, you studied English. You studied history. And you went into journalism. Why?
2: So actually, the, it has a Princeton nexus of that because the, the the person that changed my life was a teacher at Princeton named John McPhee. Oh, yeah. John McPhee. My goodness, what a great writer. One of the greatest nonfiction writers ever. And and part of the reason I went to Princeton was that I read, when I was in high school, A Sense of Where You Are. What a about, great book about, about Bill Bradley. About Bill Bradley. Beautiful book. And I thought, well, that's that's who I want to be. And so... When I was at Princeton, McPhee started teaching this course called The Literature of Fact. And I think that when I was a sophomore, it was only for sophomores, 10 kids. And it was transformational for me and because it, it like made me realize, well, I, I could actually do this. I could be a writer. And I mean, I, you know, my father was in the furniture business. I'd never met a writer before. And, and McPhee was the best teacher I've ever had at anything. Incredibly generous guy. And also someone who made you think, well, you can do this. He treated you like an adult, like a professional when you're 19 or 20. And so that was what made me want to be a writer and, and be a journalist.
1: There's a great line in that book that yielded the title because Bill Bradley was a precise performer and McPhee asked him, do you, you, can you see the basket? Do you need to see the basket and and Bradley to, to to shoot and score? And Bradley said, "No, you just have to have a sense of where you are." Yes, um, it's a lovely line, and yeah. and McPhee
2: took the title with that. And I think in many ways, Bill was also a brilliant passer, and yeah. did no look passes before it was kind of popular, and that was. You had I have to work. tell you,
1: I, I remember this. I, I don't want to geek out on basketball here. we got more important things to talk about, I know. But I was a, a kid in New York uh, when he came to the Knicks. And remember, he served in the military. Yes. Bradley well, he did. did a road Scholarship. And then, when it, yeah, one way or the other, he was in the military, did a road Scholarship. Finally, he was drafted by the Knicks, and he went to play for the Knicks. And it was a big event when he came. And the first game— uh, he was throwing these passes and they were bouncing off of people's backs and bouncing off because they'd never seen anybody pass like that before and they were unaccustomed to being fed the ball that way.
2: Yes, and they, and in fact, the Knicks sort of adapted. They started doing some backdoors. Yes. Um, actually, the amazing fact, David, that you'll remember, is remember they called Bill Dollar Bill because he yes. signed this incredible contract. You yes. know what that contract was?
1: $400,000. Over four years. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I know. He, he used to tell a joke, as you know, because you, as we'll mention in a second, you, you worked for him when he ran for president, but he used to tell a joke about going home on the holidays every year and his father, who was a banker, saying, when are you going to get a real job? When are you going to get a real job? And finally, he said, how much do they pay you in that, you know, to play that game? And he said, well, $100,000 a year. And his dad said, you know, this was in the 60s, right? And his dad said, well, that's a real job. So uh, yeah, but it, it, today it seems laughable. Yeah, it does. That's, it does. that's like lunch money uh, for for NBA stars uh, today. So you went to work for Time Magazine, and you you were reporting from South Africa. How did you? How did that come about? So by the way, just
2: uh, maybe we'll geek out about Bill Bradley yeah. for a second. So I did. I went work for him yes. later on. But when one of the things he, yeah. as a speechwriter, and one of the things he did for me was speaking of his dad, he said. Before you write, the, help me with the speech, I'll take you back to Crystal City, Missouri, where I grew up. And we went back there for like a weekend. And he showed me around. He showed me the house he grew up in. Uh, really was an incredibly special thing because that was a also a different kind of upbringing. Yeah. It was called Crystal City because there was a gigantic glass factory there. And if you look at the phone book, there are Polish names and Ukrainian names. It wasn't a farming community. It was like a mini industrial place in the heart of the Middle West. It was, it was really a lovely experience. Yeah,
1: he, he's, a, he's a really thoughtful guy. Absolutely. Really, really a thoughtful guy. had a chance to sit down with him uh, for for a podcast some time back, but I was a huge fan of his when I was a kid. Every kid in New York was a fan of those New York Knicks. Absolutely. Um, oh, South said, Africa. Yeah.
2: So South Africa, so I actually didn't go there for time. Um, I went there for Rolling Stone magazine uh-huh. in, um, I guess it was in 86 or 87, it was the uh, beginning of the township riots and and mass protests against apartheid. And um, it was really almost an accident that I went there, but I fell in love with the place and um, ended up writing a, a little book called January Sun about a forced removal in a in a town in the western Transvaal and about the, uh, the Afrikaans family, a black family, and an Indian family. and uh, so that started my whole life involvement with South Africa.
1: Yeah, it also got the attention of your publisher, and uh, who uh, I don't know if your publisher published Nelson Mandela's autobiography or another publisher published it. But your work on that book uh, uh, served as a reference for you as someone to work with Mandela on his autobiography, The Long Walk to the Long Walk to Freedom, which was one of the, uh, a really brilliant. Uh, and wonderful uh, book, and I'm interested in your observations of him because what you made clear was he is not, he was not sort of this Gandhi esque kind of personality. He was not a pacifist by any means. He no. was not a, you know, he was a hard, hardcore tactician, and and uh, you know he he. He adapted with the times and obviously was impacted by his time in prison. Tell me about him and your experiences with him.
2: And yes, David, he was he was a great tactician and hard-headed about politics, but he was also this incredibly sunny person. I mean, it's sort of the, what you want in politics, a happy warrior. He, uh, you know, his company was just such a pleasure. He was just and such you spent a, a lot of time with him. Oh, I spent a lot of time with him. Uh, in fact, we... The Mandela Center for Memory in Johannesburg has, and this is just the tip of the iceberg, 72 hours of tapes between him and me talking for the book. And I, but it was for me a life-changing experience. And I just said, "Look, Madiba, which was what everybody called him, can I just hang around with you?" And he didn't care. So we we did the interviews, and I traveled with him. I, you know, I, I went to his house in the Transkei. I stayed with him in Johannesburg it was just the most wonderful, wonderful experience. And, and and then working on the book, thinking like, how does Nelson Mandela think? What's it like to be Nelson Mandela is a, a brain expanding uh, thing. And, and it is, it, I mean, it's his book, and it's a wonderful book. And it's, you know, it'll be around as long as we all are. Um, but it it did change my life. I met my wife, who's South African. She was a photographer. She was a photographer. I met her while I was working on the book. And he Always said, Richard, you must marry her, and I—I <laughs> and I never disagreed with him. So yeah, uh, I yeah
1: actually, that's leadership right there.
2: <laughs> I actually used to joke. Now that we've said this, I've set it up. I said I'm the only person in human history who's been yelled at by Nelson Mandela
1: and Pete Carrill. <laughs> Did um, so? So tell me, just in in a few words, what what made Mandela? You know, obviously, he 27 years of imprisonment is extraordinary to think about uh, what made him uh, the leader that he was
2: well the, the incredible self-discipline which came from prison he had this one overarching idea that he was inflexible about bringing freedom to his people but then he was almost infinitely flexible about how to get there you know to renounce violence or to retain violence to re- reject capitalism or embrace capitalism I mean he he for somebody who had one goal and and one purpose and achieved it. He was infinitely flexible. I mean, he used to say that thing about, uh, I mean, I l- would love to say it to American politicians, um, you know, about changing your mind. He said, when circumstances change, I change my mind. What do you do? And Nelson Mandela changed his mind about a lot of big yeah. things. I mean, the ANC charter was a
1: socialist charter, and
2: he yeah. realized that, that it's not a He was a viewed as
1: a terrorist by... Uh, by US, the U.S. authorities uh, before he went to prison. Absolutely,
2: he was the world's number one terrorist, and and uh, he always uh, blamed, if that's the word, the CIA for uh, uh, partially for his capture. I mean, he eventually would have been captured. I think, uh, I think he was captured in '64, but um, I should do a Freedom of Information request about that and find out the answer.
1: Yeah, you want to take make a note to yourself. Uh, I've been t- <laughs> I've been <laughs> telling myself that for years. So. You covered presidential. Politics. You covered a campaign in nineteen in nineteen eighty eight. Yes, that's ninety nine. I want to ask you about the eighty eight campaign, which was uh, such an interest, maybe a hinge moment in uh, American politics. Why do you think that? Because of the use of race mm-hmm. as overtly as it was used. Yeah, in so that, that was campaign. the Willie Horton. Yeah, Willie Horton. The whole Lee Atwater, Roger yeah. Ailes uh, strategy uh, there. Um, but what were your observations of, of that campaign, the, the, that issue, the central players? And, of course, that was the camp, the first presidential race, a board of presidential race of Joe Biden. Yes. And, of course, the uh, I was thinking
2: about it the other day, the Richard Ben Kramer book about that race, What, what it, Takes. it Takes. Which Best may be the book.
1: greatest campaign book ever written. Absolutely. Really a wonderful, wonderful book.
2: That was my first campaign, and um, I don't even remember who took a chance at me in time to let me go out on the road, but I just thought it was the most fun thing that I had ever experienced. I mean, I loved, I loved being on the plane. I loved being at the rallies. I mean, I think back now. I mean, think about—there's a book about—my book is about modern information war. I remember that feeling back in 88—and I, I did— uh, Bush 41 for a while, Lloyd Benson campaign, and the right reporters were in person, these yeah. rope things you know, near the speech, and you were given a text of the speech 15 minutes before, and all the people in the crowd would go, well, where did you get that? How, how could I get that? What? I mean, information, there was a scarcity of information yeah. in that era, right? I mean, position papers that the campaigns had. So you were in this kind of special class of people who were helping to translate the candidate's vision for the readers and for audience, not everybody who could be at a speech. And I, and people took that incredibly seriously. Um, but I, I just loved being on a campaign, loved yeah. the rhythm of it, loved going to a new town every day.
1: Yeah, no, listen, I spent a lot of my life both as a reporter and then as a strategist. In fact, I was involved in that campaign. Uh, I was the media strategist for Paul Simon, who was a congressman oh, from Illinois, course. who uh, was running. So I, I, I know about the allure. Uh, The allure of the life on this issue of race, um, you know, it strikes me that um, what we're seeing maybe in even more more overt and accepted ways now, uh, those techniques were pioneered. I mean, you had George Wallace back in the 60s, but in terms of a major party candidate, um, you know, the campaign itself, and then they had a a like a the equivalent of what would be a super PAC and independent committee that actually did the, the hardcore Willie Horton ads, but um, there was a there was a Southern strategy yes uh, that they employed and and not just a Southern strategy that was all around race and the reason it's interesting to me is that Roger Ailes was sort of central to that strategy it was a few years later that he would. Uh, that he would start Fox News in conjunction right, with... Right, so he, but he
2: worked r- on, the, on the Bush campaign. He
1: was the... It was, I have to say, probably the most uh, impactful negative television campaign uh, of our time. Um, it's,
2: it's funny. I remember I wrote a story during the election cycle on Ailes, and I think it was called The Dark Prince of Negative Advertising in Time, and... Um, I, I wrote it without ever meeting him, and um, and then I actually met him at the Republican convention, and and he sort of chest bumped me. I, I I mean I I shouldn't. He's not here to rebut it anymore, but he was an extremely aggressive person. And yeah, I, I do think I, I have to say now that you talk about it and and covering later campaigns, it I think it became even more obvious this the Southern strategy that Nixon kind of invented. I guess I, I feel like I was pretty naive about it at the time and and, um, and didn't really travel in the South and, and didn't get it. And I think one of the things that, you know, hearkening to the 2016 that where Trump, what was a dog whistle, you know, for, for decades, he just made overt. And I think back to the when McCain was the nominee and when he went to South Carolina and bra- embraced all these uh, racist and racial symbols um it was all there to his
1: regret i mean he ended up uh yeah in 2000 and uh, in 2000 uh he went in and um, embraced the notion of the uh, confederate flag and spoke of it and wrote of it as one of the 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 most regretful things that he had done but um there was a reason for it it was it, it it had great power particularly in the Republican primary. Do you remember the Biden? Were you covering that? I didn't cover
2: Biden at all. And um, uh, he wasn't
1: in it all that long. Yeah, it wasn't all that long.
2: And um, and again, you know, Kramer writes about the Biden campaign in that book and and some of the mistakes that he made. And and, um, which you know about and I know about. Um,
1: Yeah. You uh, you went back to to uh, time you became uh, the managing editor Uh, of time. But you left the magazine. You were uh, the national editor at the time. And you left and you went to uh, the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. And why did you make that move? You know, I I was
2: uh, in my mid-40s, I guess. And and um, I had never been uh, ambitious to be a manager in any way. I mean, I wanted to be, a, I was a writer. I was, you know, like you were. I was a reporter. I was interested in writing. And, and uh, someone took a chance on me. I got headhunted to run this new uh, institution that dedicated the Constitution in Philadelphia, a beautiful, beautiful building on the mall in Philadelphia. And someone was you know, willing to call me president and CEO. And I thought, well, I'm going to try that. And um, I actually loved it. I loved running a nonprofit. Uh, I loved thinking and talking and doing stuff around the Constitution every day. And, and ironically, it was because I left that they lured me back to be, to be editor. I mean, I think at at the time, yeah. And so uh, great, you know, my boss at time was the person who also found me and lured me back, John Huey. Um, And, and I'm, Incredibly grateful for that, but I also felt like I, I had left. I thought, well, I'd kind of done my tour in journalism, and I'm going to I'm going to turn to something else. And uh, just when you thought you've gone, they but made, absence, lure you back. Absence
1: makes the heart grow fonder. <laughs> you, when you were at the uh, National Constitution Center, you started something called the Peter Jennings Institute to provide constitutional education for journalists. We're in what. You you would describe as a constitutional moment or crisis right now. How do you think uh, the how do you think journalists are are doing in terms of covering it uh, and the sort of constitutional basis of all of this?
2: Yeah, I, I look. I wish I wish there was more context for things. I mean, this the, the flow of news is just so great in part because of the disinformationist in chief that, that you know who, who's creating a lot of it, but. You know one of the things that I think an impeachment hearing investigation will do is it will be an instruction in the Constitution. I mean, people will you'll suddenly hear people talking about separations of powers and 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 uh, violation of the oath of office and what high crimes and misdemeanors are and and I think it will have an educational function that will be beneficial to the republic. That people will think, "Oh, I guess our this is what our system is about." I mean, look, we had a guy who was elected president who didn't know there were three branches of government. Well, I remember we did a poll when we were, we were opening the National Constitution Center, and and you know more people had heard of the three stooges than the three branches of government. I mean, that's a problem. In fact, yeah. it was Sandra Day O'Connor. The other who, problem
1: is that people now think of. These branches as the three stooges, but that's a different <laughs> Well, issue. but I, I I think they're wor- sort of working. And and um
2: you know part of the idea that the founders came up with is when one branch is sort of overweening, the other branch is yes. compensating. Well, think- I mean
1: what's being tested right now, and it will lead into our discussion a few minutes on 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 disinformation. Uh, but really, um, the thing that worries me, I, I mean, I think if you do not pursue this as the House is pursuing it, then you ought to just strip impeachment out of the Constitution and acknowledge that it has no meaning and uh, save school children a several minutes of having to study it uh, because a, a president using military aid to uh, – to leverage uh, another government to try and dig up dirt on his opponent is manifestly what the founding fathers, the kind of offense, they could imagine the circumstances, but the kind of offense that they were concerned Absolutely. about. I mean, they
2: were, as you know, incredibly wary about foreign influence. It was a young, nascent country. They were afraid of people, you know, coming and trying to upset the system. That's why there's the naturalization clause, but the other thing, and I've now gone back to read it some more in the Federalist Papers about about um, impeachment. I mean, the, they also just saw it as a betrayal of the public trust. Yes, that's what the. I mean, and an abuse of power. And an abuse of power. And and, and they're they, worried
1: about kings and and. But, but they're worried also
2: about behavior and yeah. tone and yeah. and the high in high cr- crimes and misdemeanors. Isn't isn't a adverb isn't a adjective modifying crimes and misdemeanors? It, it's meant it's committed by someone high in the government. Yes. And and those crimes and misdemeanors, which is a British phrase, I mean, can be anything, including uh, you know uh, lapses in judgment and 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 bad behavior. I mean, bad behavior was even a term that Madison used. So
1: so to me, Trump is like the. Post, Post child, yeah. For, you know, the, here's sport. the problem in the in the era in which we live uh, about that sort of open-ended definition is that um, I think a lot of Americans, even as they recognize it's bad behavior, are, are dismissive of this um, this whole uh, contratemps in Washington as sort of more of. Republicans and Democrats fighting. I, I told my colleagues last night. We, even as we talk about it, you find yourself saying, "Well, Democrats are going to bring these witnesses, and Republicans are going to, as if it is a partisan fight." And in fact, there, this, you know, it is it, this. It just plays into the kind of. Narrative that this is just another Washington food fight that doesn't really have anything to do with the day-to-day lives of people. So I think the challenge for them is going to be how do you make it? How do you make people believe that this is really relevant and necessary, especially when there's this sub, uh, this assumption that it's going to end up with the Senate dismissing the charges anyway.
2: Well, every impeachment in our history has begun uh, as a. Partisan inquiry, right? I mean, even even the vote was a party line against Andrew Johnson in the 19th century. But what I meant about the hearing—well, there being, were
1: six House members who voted for impeachment the articles of impeachment on the House Judiciary Committee nine or ten days before Nixon resigned.
2: Yes, but I think that was yeah. So so. I think partially the the Nixon example is relevant here because people only started turning against Nixon even the public was once the hearings began because the hearings were educational they were mm-hmm. like wow he did this mm-hmm. and that's what that means I think if the democrats and uh, you know handle it in that way to so let's 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 show what the evidence is let's see why this is a violation of the constitution I think people will will learn from it I mean and by the way let people decide right I mean I mean, ultimately, it's...
1: Well, that's exactly what Republican senators are going to say when they, I think, when they vote not to convict him. I may be proven wrong about this, but I think the likelihood of 20 Republicans voting for conviction, we've never actually removed a president by that process. Nixon resigned. Uh, But I think you're going to hear a lot of what he did was wrong, what he did was bad, but we are were, we were ten months away or nine months away or whatever it is from an election. Uh, let the people decide, and I, I think that's likely how it's going to end. You went back to, you went back to Time. You, time. You, it was like you would they would give you little, a few years off to to adventures, <laughs> and then you'd come back and but um, and you you ran the place. You were the editor of Time through really interesting times because the internet changed everything time magazine was like a fixture in the american household uh and then now we have this the burst of information and uh that was challenging and it continues to be challenging the news magazines aren't what the news magazines had been
2: yeah no the the economic basis uh shifted and and actually i had been the editor of time.com even before i became the editor of time and so i i kind of Started to figure out what the internet was going to do to journalism and media, and and I was a you know a, a, an idealist about the internet, and I still am actually. I mean, it's greatest information delivery system in history by an exponential margin. I think the good that it does and creates still overwhelms uh, the bad. But part of what happened was that that people. You know, paper was this distribution system once upon yes. a time. That's how people got their news. And and as soon as people started getting the news either on their laptops or their iPads or their phones, waiting for a paper product every week Plus, was, they were
1: getting it for free.
2: And they were getting it for free. So, which, again, in the early days— I used, to, I used to joke. I said, you know, the, the line was, information wants to be free. And I would say, well, no, people want free information. And we g- gave it to them. And that did undermine the economic basis of journalism. But, but journalism had always hidden the cost of, of, of what re- it really cost through advertising, right? So when you, worked for, when you were a Chicago newspaper man and someone paid 25 cents for a copy of the paper— only, that only subsidized half the cost of all the right. journalists and reporters the other half was advertising but people didn't
1: think that they My mother actually worked for PM which you may remember oh, of was course. a wow. short-lived experiment. Yeah. She was a reporter back in the 40s uh, and they were an experiment in whether you could operate a newspaper without taking advertising because they didn't want to be influenced by advertisers and it was as i said a short-lived experiment they made it hard, it was hard to Although one of the one.
2: things we're seeing now, one of the trends is papers becoming nonprofits, and um, I was just actually did an, uh, at a book fair in in uh, Austin, Texas, and and uh, you know looked at the Texas Tribune, which yes. is a completely digital right. publication, doesn't take any advertising. I, I think there are new models, and also having uh, you know Jeff Bezos buy a paper, and and it's uh, always
1: good to have like a benevolent oligarch uh take over your and that's how it started anyway
2: in the 19th century right so um so i I think the economic model will change i think you know i mean the the idea of paper still being the delivery Mm -hmm. of information i mean that will eventually go away although they'll still be glossy magazines i hope but
1: um (laughs) you know let's talk about the magazine before we leave it and get on to um the next phase of your life um one of your tasks was to oversee this institution of time, which was began and for decades and generations was called the Man of the Year. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1999, it changed from Man of the Year to Person of the Year in recognition that man that 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 women walked this planet as well and did important <laughs> things. Um, but um, it, I'm interested in some of the people who you. Uh, chosen. Some of them were people who you ended up interviewing as part of it. One of them in 2007 was Vladimir Putin. Yes. Uh, and uh, I, I read your conversation with him. First of all, what were your impressions of him?
2: Well, it's funny. I, I actually went to see Henry Kissinger before I interviewed Putin because he spent so much time with him. And Kissinger said to me, you'll be surprised at what little effort he makes to charm you <laughs> and even though I had that prepared I mean and I don't know if you've met him but it's he emanates a kind of chill air it's like standing in front of the frostiest air conditioner you've ever seen I mean it he and he has no kind of human interaction when you look in yeah. his eyes like I'm looking in yours you don't feel anything you don't feel any kind of attempt for kind of rapport or grace ingratiation that all human beings do It was completely... Yeah, I I should
1: tell you, I went to uh, Moscow with uh, President Obama Obama in 2009, and uh, he was supposed to meet with Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, and uh, he had a meeting with Putin scheduled. First, Putin was prime minister at the time, not president, and um, time passed, and all of a sudden, it became clear the president wasn't going to get out of this meeting, and so I was the beneficiary. I got to sit with Gorbachev for 45 minutes, but... When the president finally showed up, um, I said, well, what happened? He said, well, he spent the first hour sort of venting about the – but he did say – he said there was one interaction where um, um, Putin said uh, to him, you know, we're different. You're an educated man. I'm an old security apparatchik, you know, and and apparatchik. And um, he said it was very – Icy and, you know, businesslike
2: and And to confirm uh, what your boss said, by the way, who I made person of the Year twice, as yes. you remember David, is that uh, Putin is not this kind of super hyper controlled, disciplined person. He loses his temper. I mean, even in uh, this this person of the year interview we did, where he kept us waiting for six hours, uh, he lost his t- temper a number of times. It's like, Dude, I'm, we're you making you Person of the Year? Let's let's have a conversation. And and um, you know he he has a chip on his shoulder about all kinds of things. And it was in that interview that he famously said that the the dissolution of the Soviet Union was the greatest tragedy of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And I mean for him that was the truest huge thing. grievance. Huge grievance. And in fact, you know part of what I write about in the book is that all of these guys weaponized grievance. You know, yeah, uh, was Putin, interested. Trump, yeah. ISIS, and yeah. Uh, so. Um, I, I, it was a, it was an interesting glimpse into into his mind and persona, and and I think also part of that this this grievance is is what got him involved in the two thousand and sixteen campaign. His his animosity and hatred for Hillary Clinton, who he thought uh, was the instigator of the demonstrations in Moscow and around Russia in the two thousand and eleven elections. I, I mean. And I came across a quote where he said, "At the time, you know, I'll I'll have my
1: response in my own time and place," mm-hmm. and that was in 2016. Yeah, he also, uh, I think, disingenuously uh, suggested that he was uh, appalled by corruption and um, that that was a problem they were going to have to deal with. That and Putin so, said that. that Putin you mean. said that. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I think it's fair to say that he has qualified as a kleptocrat. And that he has allowed uh, corruption to flourish. You talked about him he, him as the king of Israel, which has is yes. <laughs> now become sort of... And you said King Bibi, uh, he, he conquered Israel, but will Netanyahu now make peace or war? Um, that was uh, some years ago, I think 2012 maybe. Um, what do you see when you watch now?
2: Well, I, I... I mean, he's a very persuasive person, Bibi Netanyahu, he's charming and super, super smart and and I sort of put myself in the category of people that was that were fooled by him. Um, I, I, I don't think he's ever really um, he's opportunistic, he's a pragmatist. I don't think he ever really thought about. Making peace with the Palestinians, and I would argue, I mean, the line that people used to use about the Palestinians—they never missed an opportunity. Yeah, Abu t- yeah. I would use it about about Bibi Netanyahu. He had many opportunities to make a deal with the Palestinians that I think would have secured Israel's future. In fact, when I first in tra- the State Department started traveling around the Middle East, talking to all of our Sunni allies and every pe- people in the, all over the Arab world, they never brought up the Palestinian-Israel crisis. Yes. It wasn't a crisis. It wasn't even on their radar on it anymore. What a great time to make a deal, right? When you don't have any pressure from the Arab world or the Sunnis to do it, the Palestinians really needed a deal. Make, make, have this two-country solution, and, and then and which would secure Israel for another 100 years. But he, he never was willing to do that. He, he always, uh, I think, looked at the polls and thought— No, no. Could.
1: I think he was about securing himself but, for another decade, not securing Israel yes. for— for a hundred or a thousand years. You also interviewed uh, Morsi in Egypt. Yes. You know, reading that, uh, it it made me uh, ponder the sort of tension between um, democracy and our thirst to nurture democracy around the world and these ancient tribal and religious uh, differences. Morsi was elected uh, democratically uh, and then uh, became uh, a theocrat essentially, uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, I demonstrated anti-democratic uh, sort of impulse, ultimately died in prison after yeah. we after uh, he was overthrown by the military.
2: Well, he so he was a member of the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood actually won that election, Fair and square, and I, and I have to say that I you know going there and spending some time there i I I became very impressed with the Muslim Brotherhood I know that's not a very popular thing to say in fact that they seemed most similar to me to the ANC in South Africa the African National Congress people who who had a goal who'd spent a lot of time in prison and prison kind of honed them on on these issues and I think Morsi was just the kind of the wrong horse for the for the Brotherhood. He he wasn't their first choice to be to, in the election. They lost their first couple of choices. He was a kind of a technocrat and a scientist. He'd studied at uh I think at UCLA. Um and I, I think he got a he he didn't know how to govern, and and that's part of the problem. Sometimes with revolutionary movements, they when they come into power, they they don't know how to get into power, they just don't know how to act, actually govern. And that, by the way, the ANC had that problem too. So, um, you know, I think it was a it was unfortunate. I mean, it was they were a democratically elected government, and it was an example of the positive side. I think of the Arab Spring, and then yeah. and then the I force mean, the, the
1: reality is we we we. we uh, it, it is a – maybe not right at the moment, but it has been a tradition of this country to promote democracy uh, around the world. But um, when you promote it in places where there is no real uh, civil um, yes. structure and uh, where the uh, democratic uh, principles are have not taken a route, uh, they can become the vehicle for uh, further – Further problems. This was an example. You know, I w- often wondered when when the uh, when w- the U.S. encouraged the Palestinians to have elections and Hamas yeah <laughs> uh, won. You know, these are these are not easy questions.
2: They're not easy questions, and and I'm sure David, you saw it in government. And government helped change it for me. This, I, I'm all for the promotion of democracy. But if countries don't have the civic institutions, they don't have the history of it. They don't have an understanding of it. You know, we can push them too fast and too far to embrace a kind of Jeffersonian democracy when it when it isn't necessarily going to work. And actually, one of the things we see on the world stage now is the the China model, where the yeah. Chinese are saying, "Well, yeah, these guys may actually even believe what they say about democracy, but democracy doesn't function as Seems well." Seems to
1: me this is a great danger right now that the China. I mean, we are in the 21st century, and the Chinese are saying. Maybe that model worked once, but that's not the model that's going to work today. And partly, you know, we dev- design these democracies to move slowly when there's when there's great division. And change is coming very rapidly because of technology. And you have this mismatch that I think is creating a lot of tension. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I think the Chinese have, from a propaganda standpoint, are, are taking advantage of it. Frankly, Putin uh, is is— uh, taking advantage of it, so you became you took a job uh, as Under Secretary of State for Public Diplomacy and Public Affairs. You finally became the public servant your father <laughs> hoped you uh, you would be. Um, well, and,
2: your, bo- your boss offered me a job, and I was very happy to go work for him. And
1: not, I want to point out, because he was Man of the Year twice. Uh, this was based on your experience and your your uh, qualifications and interests. Uh, and a lot of what you did was focused on this issue of social media, how information is is, is transported. And you came at a time when ISIS emerged. And uh, I think, actually, maybe I'm imagining this. I think President Trump said the other day, talk, was talking about how ISIS had mastered social media and So you were you were sort of leading the U.S. effort, at least from the diplomatic side, to combat all of that. Tell me about that experience.
2: So, so yes, about a few weeks after I started the job as Undersecretary of State for Public Diplomacy and Public Affairs, which is in some ways a kind of a communications job. It, It it talks about you're supposed to talk about America's story abroad, and public diplomacy is about people to people diplomacy, but within a few weeks of being in the job, two things happened. The first uh, ISIS uh, beheading of the American journalist uh, and Putin's annexation of Crimea, which is part of uh, Ukraine. And suddenly, in both cases, I saw all of this social media propaganda, disinformation, misinformation that I just had never witnessed before, even though I'd spent my whole life in media and journalism. And and it kind of changed my whole view of this and—, and one of the entities underneath me was something called the Center for Strategic Counterterrorism Communications, which was a little group started by Hillary Clinton to combat Al-Qaeda on social media. And they saw the, the coming of ISIS. And then when when I was so outraged by the Russian disinformation around the invasion of Crimea and Ukraine, we started a little counter-Russian group at the State Department. Um, I think we called it the Ukraine Task Force. And so those became my kind of two
1: uh, planets that I revolved around the whole time I was at the State Department. Did you see, I should ask parenthetically, um, did you see any of any indications of, of Russian incursions into elections around Europe or our own? Oh, absolutely.
2: Japan? So uh, they were very involved in uh, Brexit. I mean, I have uh, some stuff in my book about Nigel Farage yes. being a columnist for Russia Today yes. and Uh, They were they were they were absolutely creating uh, disinformation and before that primary Brexit advocate. And so yes, I'm sorry. And but and I I kind of took this out of the book because it seems esoteric now, but they supported this referendum in the Netherlands. There was a they they basically got a referendum in the Netherlands where they fooled people into voting for it. And the referendum was about whether to support Ukraine being closer to the EU or not. And then they created this tsunami of disinformation in the Netherlands, and the, the Dutch people voted against it. This happened about six months before Brexit, and I argue that it was a kind of template for Brexit. They realized, whoa, we can do this in the Netherlands. Why, why can't we do it in Britain? And they, and they have supported all of these independence movements around the world because they see them as undermining democracy, undermining the cohesion of democracy, so they'll support the— separatists in Qu- Quebec and in Spain and mm-hmm. all of these other places that, that's their you know anti-democracy movement
1: and it is a very cheap and and underground way to wage war that they really can't afford to wage exactly it's in, asymmetrical in ways
2: right i mean say i mean it, you can't you know for for, for, the, for the price of uh, you know a, a tiny missile they set up this uh, internet research agency in St. Petersburg with four or 500 people. Uh, it costs way less than an F-35. So it's asymmetric warfare. And part of what's dangerous about this global information warfare, like all kinds of inform- asymmetric warfare, is that now all the people who can't afford to be in kinetic warfare can afford to be in inf- information warfare right. because it's just—it's it's some folks with laptops and—
1: The um, North Koreans, it, the
2: Iranians. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, the Iranians have been involved in it before. The Chinese do it in a in a different way. But I mean, and, and now, of course, non-state actors do it. ISIS was a non-state actor that got involved in this. Um,
1: so you you launched this effort. How much progress did you make in 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 countermeasures uh well, I,
2: to be honest, very little, and the book is
1: is, is pretty uh,
2: astringent on how much government can do. I mean, you know, David, that I mean, one of the things in government is that when you're against something, if you put the word counter in front of it, you feel like you're doing something about it, so counterterrorism or counter-Russian propaganda. And I actually think government being involved is mostly counterproductive in the sense that We are the enemy of most of these people. I mean, you know, the the Russians, ISIS are saying that the U.S. government is responsible for all these terrible things that are happening to you. So would a tweet from the Under Secretary of State for Public Diplomacy right. have any right. pur- purchase on any of the No, and what
1: that- your your inspiration and you're right. And frankly, we learn this in campaigns that peer-to-peer correspondences are far were far more effective than correspondences from the candidate or campaign yes. to a voter. Uh, and the same is true here. That if people hear from sources that they respect, that they have with whom they have a personal uh, contact or relationship or regard. Uh, have they have a better chance of making an impact than, yes. so than we, institutions.
2: So we decided to, you know, the revelation, and probably everybody has this eventually, is that it shouldn't be us doing the messaging, but we can support people whose messaging is more powerful. So in the counter-ISIS space, you know, we, we helped film uh, women who lost their husbands or their sons. Uh, in the counter-Russian space, we helped support Ukrainian grassroots organizations that were were really being hit by this disinformation. And by the way, you know, we're also telling stories about the the deaths of Russian soldiers in Ukraine that that Ru- Russian media was hiding.
1: One of the uh, one of the challenges here is that um, is information relativism. That uh, you know, we we all celebrated the internet. A friend of mine was. Saying this to me this morning, we we celebrated the internet because it, it it collapsed hierarchies, but but in a sense, you know, truth and facts were a hierarchy it, that we valued more than other information. Now, it is um, it is hard to distinguish uh, between the two, and in fact, we have a whole presidency. I would argue that is politically predicated on that that. You know, I think one of the everybody laughed when she said it, but when Kellyanne Conway said in January of 2017, we he has a, he has alternative alternative facts. Uh, she was serious about that, mm-hmm. and that's the way uh, we have proceeded. What do we do about that? Yeah.
2: So just to that, and I mean, in my actual uh, confirmation hearing speech, I quoted uh, Pat Moynihan's great line. Yes. That you're, you're entitled to your own opinions, you're not entitled to your own facts, but more and more people feel they're entitled to their own facts, that there's no kind of source or resource where people trust it
1: as, you know, this is a fact and this is not. That's or part we, of our Or problem. we adopt sources that affirm our own points of view. Yeah, so that's we, con- we, we, we get in our uh, virtual reality silos. Uh, in which our views are affirmed, but not necessarily informed. Yes,
2: so that's confirmation bias, and I write about these cognitive biases. But now
1: that's a human
2: impulse. I mean, that has been around forever. It's just that the social media is the most effective
1: delivery system, right? Once upon a
2: time, media was pushed on you. Now we pull it in, and we pull in the stuff that we already agree with.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. you know, there are two people who you interviewed who I think are somehow relevant to this discussion when you were still at time. One was Julian Assange mm-hmm. uh, from Wikileaks and, and the other was Mark Zuckerberg, yes.
2: Yeah, so um I mean, Assange has become a a, a very bad actor, and uh, you know, WikiLeaks was an accomplice to this rise in disinformation and to the Russian disinformation. and And um, it's funny, in the the scene in the book where where I have a scene with Mark and uh, Secretary Kerry at the Facebook headquarters, the thing that uh, Zuckerberg wanted to talk to Secretary Kerry about was Russia's data localization law, which is, it sounds a little esoteric, but it's this idea, and it's part of the reason for this global rise in disinformation, that all these countries thought, well, why am I letting these big... American multinational platform companies take information from my citizens. And the Russian data localization law that Putin passed was that all information harvested in Russia must first pass through a server physically located in Russia. So this not only undermined the Facebook's business but Google's and everybody else's. But then that law was passed by every other autocratic country for, you know, from Turkey to Brazil to China where it's a closed off media space. So, so part of the reason for all this is, you know, Facebook, the premise of Facebook is it uses non-professional content. It uses content mm-hmm. created by you, me, and everybody that then they monetize through advertising and virality. Well, when you had that protected media system, you know, the, the reporters for The New York Times or CBS News, I mean, yes, you could probably – trust the content but content that's delivered by your friends and particularly your 500th friend or your 1000th friend with loose ties how can you trust that content so they so so that be, so it became this engine of a lot of disinformation. And one of the things I recommend in the book to change is how we legally treat these companies. Right right now, they're not considered publishers. And therefore, they're not liable for the content that they publish. But in fact, they're the biggest publishers in the history of the world. And I think reforming the Communications Decency Act that regulates them to give them more liability for what they publish, even though it's
1: non-professional content, would help clean up a lot of this ecosystem. Um, Do you feel like, uh, how do you feel, I know Zuckerberg was another of your former men uh, or persons of the year. Uh, How do you think that Facebook has dealt with this issue? I think they're trying to figure out how to
2: deal with it. And I think, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book was how actually successful and vigilant they were in the counter-ISIS space and the counter-Muslim extremism space. I think the Russian stuff you know kind of went under the radar. I mean the whole rationale of Russian disinformation is we pretend to be somebody we're not. We pretend to be t- Republican women voters in Tennessee or we pretend to be NRA, you know, nationalists in in Florida and and so part of it was hidden in plain sight because people weren't expecting it. It's also harder to deal with because you don't necessarily know which, you know, which person is a is a real person? Which person is a Russian? And and so they're trying to figure it out. I, I think they could have been more vigilant. And I think they've taken some stands that are that are probably counterproductive. But Should they
1: do what Twitter just did and ban political advertising?
2: I, I I'm not I, I I admire Twitter for doing that. But I also I also understand the point of view is that that political advertising is actually more protected speech than regular speech. And. Our whole democracy is based on voters trying to figure out who to vote for and consuming information and making their own decisions about things like political advertising. So I think they just have to be much more transparent about it. You have to tell users where the, who's buying the ad, why you're targeted. It should be much more transparent. But I wouldn't take
1: off uh, political advertising just yet. You, uh, you talk about the fact that we treasure the First Amendment. Uh, maybe to a fault.
2: Yes, I I saw in traveling around the world what an outlier the First Amendment is. You know, I when I was a journalist, I was a First Amendment absolutist. I love the Justice Holmes line that the First Amendment protects not just the, the ideas that we love, but the ideas that we hate. I, I respected that as a journalist, but I found that people around the world didn't really understand that. They didn't, even Europeans, certainly people in the Middle East, Africans, I mean, Nelson Mandela didn't get it. So... So, we're an exceptional, um, but I think we need to start thinking about hate speech statutes in the United States. They can be tested in the courts, and the courts can decide, well, actually, this is a violation of the First Amendment. But all of these platform companies have their own constitutions. They're called terms of service agreements. They are not affected by the First Amendment the way that government is. They can ban different kinds of speech if they want, and basically, Facebook does outlaw what what passes for hate speech in in, in, in the European setting, so so they can do that without violating the First Amendment.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you've also said you talked about the algorithms that sort of rule our lives now, but are are very much um, unknown to people that they they operate below the surface, and you often don't you often don't know how they work, and what they yield, and how they guide. Uh, how social media works. So one of the things I do propose is that, um,
2: that, that different companies need to publish their algorithms for why they, uh, what some stories go to the top and some stories are demoted and why you get the information. And not every uh, user will be able to understand that, but, but technology people will be able to understand it and say, well, you have this implicit bias in your algorithm that favors stories written by redheads over brunettes or tall people over short people. That will eventually filter out. And the other thing, too, about algorithms, as I say, is that these algorithms are editors, right? They're not human editors. They're making decisions about which stories to publish and and which stories to give uh, uh, higher placement to. That that actually proves that these content companies are publishers. Just because the editors are not
1: human beings but algorithms doesn't mean they're not publishers. Um, And you talk about media literacy as a responsibility of citizens not just uh, so it's not just providers or purveyors of this information, but also people who are receiving information that have responsibilities. Yeah,
2: so I say you know that we don't have a fake news problem, we have a media literacy problem which people can't tell the difference between information that's kind of proven and verified versus information that's not. And I propose that that should be taught in schools uh, starting at a young age. Uh, we need to figure out that curriculum. I think the platform companies should help pay for that for that kind of curriculum. Um, that's a longer term solution, but I even think now, uh, one of the things that they can do is is publish their guidelines for what they, what they consider factual-based content and what isn't and, and, and be much more upfront about that. I mean, that would be a kind of a media literacy education that happens in real time for
1: users every day. Before I let you go, Rick, I have to ask you, we've gotten a lot of visibility into sort of the State Department uh, and, and the bureaucracy of the State Department through this impeachment process and uh, a lot of disquiet. There, you worked with a lot of these people. You may know some of the people mm-hmm. who have become central figures in this impeachment drama. What, what, what is your level of concern about morale within the diplomatic corps and about the hollowing out of the diplomatic corps? Uh, you know, years and years of experience, uh, people being turned out or leaving because they don't feel they're they're able to do their jobs as they ex- they, they, they feel they should.
2: Yes, and the, and I, I actually talk about, and I'm critical a bit of the State Department bureaucracy in my book, but I think these Foreign Service officers, these career diplomats have been absolutely heroic. I mean, they're great patriots. They're, they're coming forward at, at risk to their careers, at, at risk to their reputation. It really... It, heartened me. it heartens me to see what I saw when I was at the State Department, that these are people who, who believe in their oath of office to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution, who believe that they're working for the American public, that they owe their allegiance to the public and the Constitution rather than whoever is president. Sometimes that's frustrating when you're in office, um, but uh, I've been heartened by it. At the same time, I think if a Democrat is elected in 2020, we shouldn't just go back to the to the way it was, and we should figure how do we how do we make diplomacy come into the 21st century, public diplomacy come into the 21st century. One of the things that the hollowing out that's going on now is that uh, Tillerson actually abrogated one of the the 100 classes, where, which are the new foreign service officers that come in. So not only are people with decades of experience leaving they're not bringing in new people who are who are getting trained so i think it's it'll be a new kind of a blank slate to
1: start from and and i would try to be as innovative as possible rick stengel uh the book is the information wars how we lost the global battle against disinformation and what we can do about it thank you for your service thank you for being here and thanks for many decades of great journalism
2: David, it was a super pleasure. We got to talk about Nelson Mandela and Pete Carrillo in the Yes, same what could be better? Okay. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN. Including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.